I invite you guys to have a seat for just a couple minutes as we continue to worship. My name's Eric. I want to welcome you to, to E3. Uh, this is the first week of this series that we're doing called E3 at the Movies, and the first movie that we're going to be taking a look at today is Independence Day, Resurgence, and uh, it's a sequel to uh, Independence Day, I guess non-resurgence, I don't know, Independence Day 1. Uh, which I, can't, I think came out in either 94 or 96. And I was, um, I was doing some studying this week, preparing for this. And the first Independence Day actually kicked off a wave of disaster movies in the 90s. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but uh, movies sometimes ebb and flow. The genres of movies ebb and flow and peak uh, with culture. And one of the things that people have discovered is that disaster movies tend to flourish and tend to be very, very popular in ages or eras of uh, anxiety and unrest. So we looked at kind of the, the mid-late 90s with all of the change and, and everything that's going on in the world. There's a huge wave of disaster movies that, that come out in the 90s, and we see that continuing on in, in this era now. Because we are in an era of uh, unsettledness and anxiety. If you pay any attention at all to the internet, to news, to your Twitter feed, uh, the news is bad and it does not seem to stop. Anybody know what I'm talking about today? And so I want to be very honest this morning. I want to be sort of just speak from a very personal place because one of the things that the church is supposed to do, one of the things that I am charged to do as a minister, as a pastor, is to preach the gospel. And the gospel simply means this, good news, right? And yet uh, Thursday, by Thursday of, of last week, I was trying to figure out how am I going to preach good news through the midst of all of this, and that was before I woke up on Friday, you know, and so Friday, I just, I'm just being really honest, I, I just had this question, God, how am I going to, how are we going to be people of good news, because sometimes the news just gets so dark and so bad, and, and like I said, there's always another Twitter message coming, or a Facebook message, or a news announcement about something else that's happened, and I just started thinking about, uh, I mean, I'm just going to say it, guys. Our, our country's broken right now. And it's, let's be honest, it's been broken for a while. And I, try, I was trying to figure out, God, like, how am I going to get up on Sunday and announce good news? Because I'm, I'm having trouble, God, finding the good news right now. Okay? And I know maybe we're, as pastors, we're supposed to be perfect and float around above it all. But sometimes it just gets hard. And so I was asking God, I just had this burden of God, how am I going to, how am I going to announce good news in the midst of everything? In the midst of, in the midst of, I mean, let's just go back a few weeks. In the midst of Orlando, in the midst of the Middle East, in the midst of Minneapolis, in the midst of Dallas, how am I supposed to at the same time say, hey, we have good news, right? And so Friday came, and, and uh, uh, before I be honest, I had nothing, and God wasn't really saying anything. 
And Friday afternoon came, and I really still had nothing except this question of, like, God, how am I going to announce good news on Sunday? You know? I mean, talking about Independence Day and whatever, and I'm like, how am I going to? Because, spoiler alert, the movie's really bad. (laughs) So I knew there was no good news coming from that. And uh, so I had a huge burden and a huge stress, obviously, because I believe in the good news and I believe that we need to be people of good news. I just couldn't find it for myself. Anybody ever been there? So uh, Friday night came and went out to dinner with my, with my um, family. And then Shana and I, my wife, we were going to have a little date night. And so we, we, the kids drove home and, and we figured out what we were going to do. And, and she said, what do you want to do? And we kicked around a couple uh, ideas. And I said, you know what? I said, I don't have anything. I said, can we just go down? Let's just go down to Cascades Park and let's just walk around. Because I like Cascades Park. I like the environment there. It's just, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to be outside. I just wanted to be in a relaxed atmosphere. So we went down there. And we get down there, and there, there, we found out there were streets blocked off because there was an event happening. And we're like, okay, well, let's see what this means, you know, because we weren't sure what we were getting into. And so we parked a little bit of ways and walked in. And, and as, we, uh, as we're coming into the band shell, right, um, I, can hear, I can hear a band playing. And uh, because I've, you know, Music is something I do. I was like, I instantly, I could tell from the sound of the drums and the sound of the rhythm section. I was like, that's a gospel band. Like, that's a gospel band. And I was like, oh, let's see what this is. And uh, so there was this free community event. And it was a, essentially a, an event of like um, sort of, uh, well, just gospel music, right? And so we wandered in. And we didn't know anybody, you know, and we just sat for a while and we listened to these folks. And uh, over... Over the time that we were there, I immediately began to sense God saying, this is where, this is where you need to be right now, and this is where you're going to get a handle of what it means to proclaim good news, because I had nothing, right? And I sat there, and, and again, we're in an environment we don't know anybody. We're sitting there just listening to some of the songs we knew, some of the songs we didn't, and yet these people... These, 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 these men and women and kids had banded together and they were just singing worship songs in a public environment, in a public park, you know, right on the edge of downtown. And they were crying out at times and they would pray for Tallahassee and they would pray for our country and they were just giving themselves over to hope when I had none. And so to bring that story sort of to a close, you know, um, I needed the rest of the church of Jesus to kind of give me a little bit of a good news infusion. And I sat around and I was realizing, man, there are people who still have hope. In fact, a lot of people when we were there that these are the folks that really shouldn't have any hope anymore. These are the people that really could be sitting around and going, yes, you don't know how bad it is, Eric. And yet they are praising Jesus and calling out his name like I said, in the middle of a public park. And I was like, when's the last time I did that? It's one thing to worship with all you guys on the Sunday. It's another thing to kind of just let it all hang out in public. And uh, so that was where over, over, and so a couple other things happened that were just very cool. And God said, okay, you're ready. There's still good news out there. And I want to just kind of offer up a couple words to you guys before we return to worship because um, 
I can't pretend that there's not more bad news that's going to come. That's just the nature of the world we live in. And I've also gotten struck with the fact that what we've been doing to try to fix it is not going to work anymore. And we need God's help to do it. Our human methods of fixing the things that are wrong with our country and the things that are wrong with our world will not work. Because if they would work, I think they would have happened by now. And sitting there in that environment on Friday night, I was reminded, like, this is a God operation that needs to happen. But here's the good news is that this is exactly the type of thing that God specializes in. So I want to give you three tools that I've just been thinking about because you guys get the same bad news that I do. And we cannot sit there and keep going at this in our human ways because our human ways, in my experience, maybe I'm wrong, tend to degenerate into arguing, frustration, and division. Whereas God's ways tend to involve unity and community and sacrificial love. So here's a couple tools that I think the church needs to be about and you need to be about as part of the church in dealing with the bad news that comes. The first tool is the tool of lament. Lament is kind of a, that's a spiritual word, right? I don't think anybody throws around the word lament in your performance reviews or on your essays that you have to write for school. Lamenting is something that, that we don't do much anymore. Lamenting is full, uh, is, is threaded through the Psalms. The key phrase of lament is, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, is it going to be this way? But lamenting is critical because, uh, as one of my favorite theologians put it, lamenting tells you that it can still be fixed. Because when you stop crying is when you've given up. And so as God's people, I think we need to recover the language of lament for our world, for our country, and for our lives. And we need to get off of Facebook maybe and get on our knees and cry out to God, how long, oh Lord, will it be this way? How long will you let this go on, Lord? How long will you let me be blind to the areas of my life that I need to change so that I can be a part of the change? And the second tool that I would offer up to you guys is the tool of hope. And this is where I was on Friday. I was in danger of losing this hope. I was in danger of just going like, I, just, I don't have anything anymore, God. I don't, I don't know. I don't think anything's going to get any better. And God put, uh, put a, a scene of a movie in my mind. One of my favorite movies is you know, the Lord of the Rings series. And ironically, uh, Cody was in the, in the back this morning reading uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. That's what we do in the green room. We're so cool. We sit in the green room and read Lord of the Rings. There's a scene in the second movie, The Two Towers, it's before this epic battle, and, and there's a guy named Aragorn, played by Viggo Mortensen. He's kind of this central character. He has a buddy named Legolas, and they're facing insurmountable odds. And they're with this small group of fighters that, that are in a fortress, and Legolas is saying to, to Aragorn in a language that no one else can understand, he says, this is a fight they cannot win. There's only 300 of them against 10,000. And then Legolas says, they're all going to die. 
And Aragorn shouts back at him. He says, then I shall die as one of them. And I've always loved that scene, just the identification that, that Aragorn has with this hopeless situation. And he says, if that's all it is, then I'm going to go down with the ship. But then there's another part of the scene that really struck me. And that's when Legolas comes back to his buddy Aragorn and he says, forgive me. He says, I was wrong to despair. And it struck me that I was in a place of despair on Friday. It is wrong for me to despair. Because as Christians, we are called to eternal hope. Because our faith is predicated on a guy that was dead in a grave. And then three days later, wasn't dead anymore. And if that's not hope, I don't know what is. The morning will always come with us. We are people of the dawn, not people of the midnight. The last tool is a tool of the way of Jesus. Again, our country is not going to be fixed with human ideas. It can be fixed by the way of Jesus. Shana last night was sharing with me, uh, she's reading a book by a lady, a pastor called Nadia Boltz Weber, and she told this story about, about how healing works with the way of Jesus. Jesus does these amazing healings all through the, the Gospels, but she points out that in a lot of ways, Jesus' healings are never complete until there's a restoration of community. So Jesus might heal a guy of something that's going on in his body or his soul, but for Jesus, the healing isn't complete until the guy is restored to the community. And right now, our community is becoming more fractured and more divided. And it's not just to say we want to fix what's broken in the system. We need to be people who say the fix isn't done until we are in unity with each other. It doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge our differences. But we don't just, we're not just about fixing the system. We are about leading restoration to community with each other. And that, friends, brothers, and sisters, happens through the way of the cross. The scripture said that Jesus gave up his rights to bring us into relationship and community with the Father and with each other. St. Francis of Assisi says uh, that when he prayed, he prayed not that he would be understood, but that he would seek to understand everybody else. And I think as we interact with the problems and the challenges and the mountains, and they are mountains facing our culture and our world, that one of the things we need to be about is seeking to understand everybody else before we are seek to be understood ourselves. Lay down our rights. That's my journey. That's what brought me to this morning. Uh, I needed that hope. And I, I want to tell you that I'm not wishing it away. You know, I, 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 uh, one of the, the truths that I've been reminded of recently in my life is, you know, we didn't get into this problem overnight. And it's not going to be fixed overnight. And so what it requires is, is what I would call a long obedience in the same direction to the way of Christ, to the tool of lament, and the weapon of hope. We are people of the dawn, and we shall not give up hope. As we continue to worship, uh, I was thinking this morning, the, the week before Easter is called Holy Week. 
where we walk through the last days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And if you've ever been to our uh, Good Friday, Friday night of Holy Week gathering, it's called Tenebrae, the service of shadows. And when we do that gathering, one of the things that we do in the beginning of that gathering is we light a candle. It's called the Christ candle. And it's just there to symbolize Christ's presence in our life, even when it's dark. And so I thought before we, before we continue to worship, I'm gonna light the Christ candle. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I don't know where good news is. And Eric said a bunch of stuff, but he really just wasted 10 minutes of my singing time because I'm still not there. I invite you to just look at this candle because a candle, it shines in the dark and it illuminates the darkness. And that's what we need. And the candle this morning for me, I want to tell you just real honest, real bluntly, the candle symbolizes that I can still have hope when there are families who are going to have their dads come home from work, whether they were on duty or whether they were just driving home and got stopped. I think the reality is that we need to get beyond whose side God's on and just realize we're all in this together and we have a long way to go. And I do know that God is not on the side of weeping children who don't have parents anymore or weeping parents who don't have children or brothers and sisters. So I'm gonna light this candle and we're gonna sing some more. This candle symbolizes for me that I can have hope no matter what alerts come through on my phone, good news or bad news. Would you guys stand with us? So, yeah, uh, John at one point mentioned, you know, there were so many you know, moments of beauty. and levit- Unfortunately, those movement, move, uh, moments of beauty and, and joy only happened when the movie ended for me. Um, uh, this is, I actually fell asleep during this movie. Like... <laughs> And that, I don't fall asleep during movies, especially in a theater, but I was like sitting there and I was like, oh, I'm dozing off right now. Um, yeah, it's the seats. That's what it was. Anybody see the movie? Just curious. Okay, I don't know if I need to apologize, but whatever, you know. Um, whatever, I, maybe you liked it. I don't know. So it's a sequel, you know, the first one, like I said, came out in 1996, um, and one of the things that's interesting about 2016 is they say it's going to be a record year for movie sequels. 37 movie sequels coming out this year in 2016. And, I, and it led me to the question of like, why, why do people do sequels? Because let's face it, most of the sequels are never as good as the first one, right? There's a few that stand out, but most sequels never, never reach the, the critical acclaim of the first one. And you know what? It's all about the money. Because the average sequel, I, I, I read, I think I got this right, the average sequel makes eight times the amount of money that the original makes. Even if it goes like straight to video. I would almost say especially if it goes straight to video. So sequels are great ideas financially, but not always great ideas creatively. And... Um, That's kind of what I want to talk about today because I really found no purpose in talking about anything about Independence Day. I'm going to be honest. 
I mean, the movie, let me, let me just unpack the, the plot a little bit. You know, I'm, I really don't want to be unkind to the movie because whatever, I mean, explosions, awesome, hit the alien, awesome. But it's not just a sequel of the movie. They kind of hit at this. It's actually just a remake. It, it's, it's just Independence Day again. Like there's a line that Jeff Goldblum's character says, and he says, wow, they're bigger this time. And that's almost the only difference in the movie. The same aliens come back to destroy the same earth. And oh my gosh, it looks like we're going to be destroyed. And then hope hangs on a thread. And then oh my gosh, we win. Like literally it's the same movie again. Dude, if I'm spoiling Independence Day for you. Anyway. So I want to look at this idea of, of sequels, uh, of sequels in our lives. Because actually, I think the whole idea of why there are sequels in the first place has actually kind of really spoke something to me. Because as I said, like most of the time, when a, when a film company does a sequel, you know, it's a little bit easier to do a sequel than a first one. Because you have the elements of the plot line and you can go like, well, you can build off things and you can change things. But the creativity, the baseline creativity is there for you to work with. And I want to talk about it by talking about uh, an interaction that Jesus has in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 12, we're just going to go through this interchange that Jesus has with the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. They come to Jesus one day. And they say to him, teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority, right? Uh, now, this is interesting to me on a couple different levels. The first thing is that it's interesting because Jesus has this really interesting relationship with signs in his ministry. Because on the one hand, Jesus is all about signs. If you read the Gospels, you should. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is all about doing supernatural things. He heals people. Heals them physically. Heals them spiritually. Heals them emotionally. Does crazy things. Walks on water. Stills wind. Jesus is not shy about signs unless you ask him for one. And there is no shorter way to get on Jesus' bad side than to walk up to him and ask him for a sign. It puts him in an instant bad mood. Happens in multiple gospels. Jesus, teacher, ask us for a sign. And Jesus is like, oh, you want a sign, do you? And then something relatively unpleasant is about to happen to the person who's asking for a sign. But it's interesting to me that at the same time, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they come up and they ask for signs. But if you read the context of this interaction, Jesus has just gotten done doing signs. He's just healed somebody. And these guys come up and they say, well, can you show us a sign? And imagine Jesus is like, well, what more do you want? I heal people. I do things all the time. So why are you asking for something? And I, I want to suggest to you that it's buried in their language of one thing that says, hey, do a sign so you can prove yourself to us. And I think that's what sets Jesus off. Because Jesus is like, I don't need to prove anything to you. 
And I think there's this relationship that Jesus has with people in the Gospels where if they are coming to him and asking for signs and there is a, uh, not even a skepticism, but there is a, hey, show me something, Jesus. Prove it to me, Jesus. If there's a cynical part of them that says, we're not gonna be down with this thing until you do a magic trick for us. Jesus is like, well, then I don't know that we have a commonality here. And Jesus is not a performing circus monkey. Jesus is like, these signs are not for me to constantly prove myself to you because it's kind of obvious from the way you're asking that you're not really down with what I'm doing anyway. And I'm not a circus animal that's gonna jump when you say jump. So they come to him, they ask for a sign and he responds this way. Remember what I said about there's no shorter way to get on Jesus' bad side? He says, hey, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So he says, hey, sign of Jonah. And he kind of unpacks that a little bit. He says, Jonah was in the belly of a fish, belly of a whale for three days, three nights. I'm gonna be in the belly of the earth for three days, three nights. You want a sign? How about resurrection? He says that, okay? But there's actually something I think that's, that's also going on because who are these people that he's talking to? They're the Pharisees and who else? The teachers of religious law. You think they knew the story of Jonah? Probably, and if they knew the story of Jonah, they would know that the actual part where Jonah's in the belly of the fish is actually just a tiny little piece of, the, of Jonah's story. And furthermore, they would know, well, why does Jonah end up in the fish in the first place? Anybody remember the story? He's told to go to where? Nineveh. And why does he end up in the fish? Because he doesn't go. He's disobedient. And who are the Ninevites? Well, they're these big, bad bullies in the ancient Near East. They're the worst of the worst. They're the Assyrians. And essentially, God says to Jonah, hey, go to the people who are the most outsiders of the outsiders. Go to the people that you're afraid of. Go to the people that would never, ever seem to be down with the movement of God. Go to the people that you are afraid of and the last people that you would ever think that God would want on his team. And he says, go to those guys. And Jonah doesn't go, and he ends up in the fish. Um, and I think it's interesting because a huge part of Jesus' ministry is going to the, what they call the least, the last, and the outsiders. And he says, hey, all the people that you don't think are down with God's agenda, those are the people I'm going to. So I think that the sign of Jonah is not just about resurrection. The sign of Jonah is also continuing to talk to the teachers of religious law and saying, your view of God is too small. The sign of Jonah is just not just about my resurrection. The sign of Jonah is for you to think about who gets in on God's movement? Who gets in on the love of God? Is it only the people that look nice when they come to church? I know in Mark's view, is it only the people that wear shorts on, in the summer at E3? Are those the people that get, or, or can us guys that wear jeans in the summer get in on God? No, everybody gets in on God's love. There are no outsiders in the sign of Jonah. 
He goes on. He unpacks it a little bit. He says, hey, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. He goes to Nineveh eventually, and he calls the outsiders, the big bad bullies, the hateful people, he calls them to repent. And you know what? They say, we're going to turn our lives around. We'll do it. They do it. Now, someone greater than Jonah, he's talking about himself, Jesus is, but you refuse to repent even though someone greater than Jonah is here. Then the queen of Sheba, who's another outsider from the Old Testament, the queen of Sheba does not look like she belongs in this God movement. She will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but someone greater than Solomon is here. But you refuse to listen. And then he ends this way. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept, and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Now, in my personal opinion, in this particular passage, Jesus is not so much talking about the way demons work in the world. I think in this context, Jesus is saying, look, you have so badly missed the point of what God's up to. Pharisees and teachers of religious law, that the sign of Joseph or sign of Jonah tells me to tell you that your situation is gonna get a lot worse before it gets better because you are letting the wrong people, you're letting them stay out of God's movement. God is calling people into this thing. And so this, this temple that you've built, this nationalistic agenda that you've built in Israel at the time is gonna come crumbling down because this is not the way God is moving in the world. And I think what essentially the, 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 the thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law are missing is that they're looking for a sequel instead of looking for something new. Because they come up to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. And these people know God. They know what he's been up to. They know the things that he's done. And they're like, hey, show us a sign so you can prove your authority to us. And I think what they're asking is like, give us a sequel to the things that God has done in the past. The things that God has done in the past, show us some of those things when Jesus is like, no, 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 there's no sequels. Like God's doing something new. Like there's going to be a resurrection. Like the way that God has moved in the past is not the way he's moving now. But they want a sequel. They want the sign. And Jesus is like, it's not working like that. Essentially, he's saying, and, and this, is a, this is an idea that resonates with me. He's saying salvation lies in front of you, not behind you. It's not enough to go back to Exodus. It's not enough to go back to Sinai. The things that have been in their past, they're like, you know what? Can you just do that 10 commandments thing again? Can you do that Sinai thing with all the thunder and the, the, the flashing lightning? That's awesome. We would really like another Sinai. Can you do that sign? And Jesus is like, that was a one-time deal. You're supposed to learn from that. But Jesus is not about doing signs over and over and over for people who are constantly saying, I'll believe in you if you just do it. 
Just perform. So I think that's what's going on in the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. They're, they're wanting the sequel, and Jesus says no. But I have three thoughts I want to leave you with. The first thought is this, that the desire for signs and sequels is pretty normal, I think. I think it's really human to look for sequels because it's the way things have worked in the past and we want consistency, right? Is it just me that just wants to know, hey, the things that I've done in the past that make me feel good about myself, that make me feel good about God, I want those things to stay the same always. And I want to know that I can do the same things day in and day out and always have the same feelings. It's human to desire signs. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody in this room desire signs? You like the signs? But the thing about signs is they can also turn God into sort of a vending machine or a math problem. Because what is very tempting to do when you start interacting with signs, when you think about signs, is you think, well, if I do my part, then God will do his part. Which is fine, except that's not exactly grace. And God is not exactly a circus performer. So sometimes we think, look, I'm gonna, I really need God to do something in my life, so I'm going to go to both worship gatherings on Sunday. And I'm going to get my coffee ahead of time, so I'm ready to sing at the first song instead of the second song. And because I do those things, therefore, I can rely on God to be extra good to me. And God, let's just be honest, says, I would have been good to you if you would have come in on the third song. I love you no matter what. And there's a piece of it that says, if I do this, we want the signs to say, look, if I do my part, God will do his part. And God's like, I'll do my part regardless. Don't worry about the sign. Don't worry about arranging your life to think that like, that, that spirituality is some kind of math problem that will always be solved. One plus one plus one equals three. God's like, the answer is infinity and I've given it to you already. The second thought is, is, is uh, that is the second thought. The third thought is this, uh, that even when you get signs right, that signs are only ever just a part of the story. And this is where I've been growing lately. Because I think the other part about signs is that we want to use the signs to prove to ourselves that God still loves us, which is a completely valid thing. But the thing that I'm learning in my life is about is what I would call sheer, true faith. And what I'm trying to do is wean myself off of signs. Because sometimes if I don't see a sign, and maybe this is just me, but maybe it's you, sometimes when you don't see the sign, you think, oh, I've done something wrong and God's angry with me now. Because I didn't get the sign. So God must be, I must have done something wrong. And God's like, I don't work that way. Nothing you can do can make me love you more or less. It's not about the signs. And so what I've been trying to do in my life is forget about the signs and, and to just deal with the fact of what do I know to be true about my Father in heaven. There's this passage that I love in the book of Isaiah. God says, though the water may come up to your neck, I will be with you. But I think in my life, when the water got up to my knees, I started looking for the sign. 
God, the water's up to my knees. I need a sign because I'm going to take another step here. And you take another step and then the water's up to your thighs. God, how about a sign here? We take another step and then the water's up to your torso. God, sign, sign, sign. And I get so desperate for the sign. And God's like, no, just keep walking. I told you. Well, the water might come up to your neck. I'll be with you. But I want a sign. Ah, The sign is just kind of an additional grace. But God's like, I've told you. So for me, like, you know, learning to walk and it gets here and you're like, oh, oh no, Lord. Oh no. And it's like, and then you take another step and then all of a sudden the water's back down here again. And you're like, oh. and you take more steps. And then pretty soon you look behind you and the water's back down at your knees and you're like, I just came through that and I'm not, I'm not dead. And I didn't even necessarily get a sign. I just had to keep taking one step after the other. And God's like, yeah, now you're getting it. This is where I'm learning now. Signs are just a tiny little piece of life with God. Faith is what God calls us to in faith. Woohoo, you will never have a boring day on faith, let me tell you. You never will. So I have just a couple questions for you. Let's just bring this home. First question Has your life turned into a sequel? Have you gotten too adjusted into the way God, way God has worked in your life before? And you're like, you know what? I'm a little more comfortable, God, if you would just, can we just do like Eric Case part three, part five? Because I'm comfortable if we could just keep repeating the things that, that I'm used to. Has your life become a sequel? Where's God saying, you know what? How about if we just scrap this whole script and write a new movie? Second question, have you become too dependent on signs and wonders? Are you walking into something in your life and you're, and you're at your knees or the water's at your thighs and you're like, I don't see any signs, so I'm going to come back. I'm walking this way, God, because this is what I know. And God's like, no, if you just would have kept walking. But I didn't see a sign, God. God's like, there wasn't one to see. Third question. Relatedly, do you need to re-engage with faith and trust? Do you need to stop walking up to God and saying, show me a sign so I'll believe in you? And rather just go, I'm just going to take a step of faith on this, God. And I'm going to trust you. Even though I don't see what's in front of me. Even though the water might be here or here or here. Uh, not every sequel is, uh, you know, The Empire Strikes Back. Most sequels are Independence Day resurgence, right? <laughs> and I think if we can just learn to wrap our mind around, look, even though, I, even though it's foggy that direction, I'd rather go to something new than have a rewrite of a movie that Maybe doesn't need a rewrite in the first place. Even if no Will Smith is over here, just go. Amen? Amen.